This episode of the podcast is sponsored by HelloFresh. Welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, I am your host, Simon. In this one today, the Alaskan Fishing Boat Massacre. What happens here, if you're new, is uh, Callum will write me a script. I've got the script in front of me here. I'm going to read it to you, dear listener. We're going to explore something horrible. Today, it's a massacre. Together. And then afterwards, Jen, a fine video producer, is going to some music if you watch this in the video form which you can do on youtube then you get some pictures and images and such things to go along with it which is just fantastic if you're listening in the audio form well i'll just paint a picture with callum's words i said that on the last episode i really liked it so now i'm just sticking with it uh yes so the alaskan fishing boat massacre let's just jump in shall we Through the dense Alaskan fog on September the 7th, 1982, the fishermen docked at the Alaskan fishing town of Craig and spotted a plume of black smoke billowing into the air out towards the Pacific Ocean. Despite the blaze, no SOS message will broadcast on the radio, and a raging inferno is typically something that you'd want a bit of assistance with. I mean, unless you're all dead, because it's a raging inferno, then there's no one there to send an SOS message, so I guess it's fine. <laughs> Just less of a priority. This was the strange beginning of a far stranger tale, which would spiral out into the state's most expensive, mysterious criminal case. After spotting the burning ship, the skipper of a trawler named Casino radioed the authorities at 4pm before setting off to lend a hand. Little did they know that they were about to discover the scene of the worst unsolved murder in Alaskan history. And I figure there must be a lot of unsolved mysteries in Alaskan history, right? Because, I don't know, according to TV shows, it's like when you're on the run, like the feds are after you, people go to Alaska, right? That's where that's where people run off to. It always seems in the movies, you had to go up to Alaska. It's like, they don't have police up there or something? <laughs> kind of weird. Anyway. The fire. The town of Craig itself is a small remote settlement on Alaska's Prince of Wales Island. Its permanent population is only around 1,300, but during the summer and autumn, it draws in a transient population of trawlermen for the salmon fishing season. These visitors gathered alongside the locals on the waterfront to watch as the casino made its way out to a remote cove at Fish Egg Island about a mile offshore. On the way, they came across a small boat heading back to the port. It was the skiff from the burning boat. Only one person was on board, a young man, but they were a bit too distracted to get a good look at him or to question why he left his crewmates aboard the sinking ship while he motored off to safety. Uh, I'd I, I be mean, like, when he comes to shore, arrest that guy or at least take him in for questioning because he's sailing away from a burning ship with lots of people on it and he's the only one. Uh, I, it, I, I never read these before, so my assumption right now, my big guess, that guy's a bit of a criminal. At the remote wooded cove, the crew of the casino found the hulking 58-foot salmon fishing boat in Vesta ablaze. Aside from the sounds of the roaring flames, it was eerily quiet. It didn't look like anyone was left on board the boat at all. Had they jumped ship and swam to safety? As Ray Shapley, the Craig Sheriff at the time, put it, When I got there, black smoke was coming out of the wheelhouse, but there was nobody on deck. It made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. There was no chance of hopping on board to check for survivors. By now, the fire had spread out from the crew quarters in the bow, engulfing the entire ship. A group of locals, state troopers and visiting fishermen did their best to fight the fire over the course of four hours, after which the Coast Guard arrived with a pair of water pumps and finally extinguished the blaze. When the police boarded the blackened wreck, they made a terrifying discovery. The boat wasn't deserted at all. Oh God, did the guy... The guy who was rowing away on the boat, my current theory is that 
he murdered everyone and then he set the ship on fire or that he locked everyone in a room and set the ship on fire because he's a psycho because this is the casual criminalist and there's often a psycho and i think it's this guy the remains the charred remains of the occupants were burned beyond recognition it was so bad that it wasn't even clear to the state troopers how many people they were actually looking at in the least damaged areas the bodies were at least visually identifiable as human but it would still be a few days before they were identified using dental records as expected the owner of the boat 28 year old mark Coulthurst, was among them his pregnant wife irene was identified next then their five-year-old daughter kimberly and finally michael stewart mark's 19 year old cousin who was working as a deckhand over the salmon season oh i just expected it to be a bunch of fishermen and now it's like this dude's whole family including his pregnant wife i know all human life is human life but that's just that is worse this accounted for only half of the remains found on board unfortunately the rest called for dustpans rather than body bags scattered with fragments of tooth and bone these were currently being poured over in a lab in anchorage Given the fact that these pieces were found in the crew quarters, the lab tech surmised that they must have belonged to several teenage crew members, Jerome Keown, Chris Heyman, and Dean Moon. But out of those three, only Jerome was positively identified. Tragically, there was no sign of Mark and Irene's other child, four-year-old John Coultest. The authorities suspected that he must have been asleep in the part of the ship worst affected by the fire, meaning there was simply nothing left to find. That basically accounted for the entire manifest of the investor, but did little to explain how and why those on board were caught in the fire. Why had nobody jumped ship or sent out a mayday signal? Because they were locked in the room by that psycho in the boat. That's my theory still. The least damaged bodies offered up an explanation. No traces of carbon monoxide were found in Mark or Irene's lungs, meaning they had already taken their last breath before the blaze began. Forensic analysis also re revealed two gunshot wounds from what the coroner believed to be a 22 caliber gun. The lead up to the murder. The investor pulled up into the Craig docks just two days before the blaze on Sunday, the 5th of September. With the salmon season coming to a close, hundreds of fishermen were stopping by the town, selling off their haul and resupplying before the journey home. Based out of Washington State, Captain Mark was one of the most talented, successful young fishermen in the industry, still only in his late 20s. He upgraded to the state of the art vessel the year prior for a cool $850,000 boats are expensive he was just an incredibly hard worker who always said he was going to retire by the time he was 50 and i never doubted it his younger sister laurie hart told the press from the sounds of it it seems like he was well on track mark's biggest accomplishment to date was catching hundred and five thousand dollars worth of fish in a single weekend oh my god yes i mean dude how much money do you need to retire you're in your late 20s you've got 30 years of that maybe i just don't understand the fishing industry but just do a few weekends <laughs> over a few years you'll be fine why retire just go out occasionally and catch that much fish i'm sorry i'm sure i'm simplifying it because if all fishermen were extremely wealthy i feel like i'd definitely know about that and would maybe be a fisherman <laughs> who knew fishermen were making bank like that agreed callum i'm ready to sell my macbook for a rowboat the only problem was that mark wasn't shy and bragging about his fax stacks of salmon cash his cocky attitude won him a few bitter rivals in the industry some of whom were also in craig on that fateful day uh-oh I mean, enough to murder him and his family? That would be pretty intense. A few of them were no doubt watching as the investor pulled up in port just a week or so before the end of the fishing season. The ship was there to offload a whopping 77,000 pounds of salmon, rounding out another successful year's work. I don't know really like what pounds are in kilograms. I tend to think of weight in kilograms. 
but I know it's it's a lot, right? It's it's a lot. It's many, many thousands of tons. They planned on hanging around until their $30,000 payment was settled. Although that doesn't seem like a lot of money. That's like $2 a pound, right? No, 50 cents a pound of salmon. That seems really cheap. I mean, salmon's normally quite... I guess, you know, you're buying it off the fishermen. Anyway. After settling the business with the fishmonger, Mark and his crew tethered the investor to a pair of ships at the dock, the Decade and the Defiant. Space in the docks was running low, but Mark was well acquainted with the captains of the other two ships, so they didn't mind the inconvenience of him and his gang walking over their decks to make it onto the dock. In the evening, the Coulthouse family went out to celebrate the superstar fisherman's 28th birthday at a waterside restaurant called Ruth Ann's, and they returned to the boat by 9.30pm. As they crossed over the deck of the decade in the drizzling rain, they would have heard a loud party raging below. The crew spent the entire night celebrating. It's thought that the adults continued drinking for a while aboard their own boat before turning in for the night. The last time any of them were seen alive was when Little John popped his head out to shout goodnight to a crewman on the decade. Then, sometime in the dead of night, his killer snuck over the decks of the other boats and boarded the investor. The rain outside had turned into a full-blown storm which helped conceal the sounds of what came next. The murderer went from room to room and systematically executed everyone on board. Mark, his wife, his staff, even the children. That is crazy dark. The Witness Rules In the early hours of the following morning, the investor started slowly drifting away from the docks with a new captain at its helm. Just after 6am, a deckhand from the decade spotted the person who he assumed to be Mark guiding the boat slowly out of harbour. This mysterious figure was even brazen enough to wave back at him. This, so this is the, must be the guy who escaped in the boat, right? So he murders everyone for God knows whatever reason, and he's clearly a psycho because he's murdering children. And then I guess he plans, you know, he drives the boat out, he sets it on fire to burn all the evidence, and then he gets back in the boat and, say, and, and rows back to shore. This is titled The Alaskan Fishing Boat Massacre. If it was titled The Mystery of the Alaskan Fishing Boat Massacre, I'd, I'd assume that the guy wasn't caught. But given that it's not, I assume we're going to catch this guy. I mean, I hope we catch this guy. No one likes a child murderer. At this point, there was no cause for concern. The season was resuming that day after a weekend hiatus, so Mark would probably just was just taking his boat out for one last expedition. But if they'd thought about it a little longer, they'd have noticed some things were a little off. For one, the engine on the investor was silent, as if the man behind the controls didn't want to draw any attention, and the boat's expensive tether ropes had been carelessly discarded on the decade. Another member of the decade's crew caught a glimpse of the mystery killer as the boat drifted out into open water. He described the suspect as a man in his early 20s, about 150 pounds, wearing a baseball cap with light-colored hair and a pockmarked complexion. Nothing particularly distinctive or alarming. After dropping anchor in the secluded bay offshore, shielded from the town by a thick layer of fog, this mysterious individual attempted to sink the boat by opening something called a seacock. Apparently, it was supposed to flood the hull and send the ship to the bottom of the bay before the weather cleared. I, I imagine there's going to be some safety procedures on a ship so you can't just pull a plug and it sinks. A large $850,000 boat is going to be like, no thanks, I'm not sinking. <laughs> there's, there's going to be something that stops that from happening, which I'm guessing is why he sets it on fire. However, the floating casket failed to sink. It remained bobbing on the surface as the killer hopped into the investor's skiff and motored back to the mainland. It was only a matter of time before someone discovered the remains and potentially a host of incriminating evidence. Later that day, someone matching the description was seen at a car repair garage in Craig purchasing a 2.5-gallon canister of gasoline. The fog held up for the rest of the day and night, buying them a little more time to cover their tracks. I feel that seems like a very long-winded way to go about it just to buy 2.5 liters of gallons of gasoline so what 
is that 10 liters about so is that going to do much damage to a boat also isn't the fuel on the boat that you can somehow take out of the tank and use as uh accelerants I, I don't know stop giving tips to criminals simon the next afternoon the killer returned to the scene of the crime if he couldn't sink the ship he would just have to purge it of any and all evidence he doused the sleeping areas in petrol and shut this and set the ship ablaze within minutes the black plume of smoke reached hundreds of feet into the sky we pretty much know what happened to the boat after that but how about this maritime arsonist the skiffy road to freedom was discovered abandoned at the craig docks not long after the fire was extinguished but the mystery man was nowhere to be found the last anyone ever saw of him was just after he pulled up to shore after passing the casino he hopped onto the docks in craig and he stopped to chat with several people gathered on the docks a few minutes later he disappeared to make a phone call and he was never seen again oh so we don't catch him okay that's disappointing <laughs> but one thing you'd never be disappointed by is today's fantastic sponsor hello fresh yes that's right hello fresh is america's number one meal kit it offers mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door what does that mean well it means you get to skip the grocery store and count on hello fresh to make home cooking easy fun and affordable i personally hate going to the grocery store because you go there to buy some ingredients for a meal and you spend like half an hour going around trying to find all the stupid things and it's like why is this located over here why is it in this part of the supermarket why supermarket and then they don't have sour cream or whatever and you have to go to the grocery store the, the corner store on the way home and it's just all a bit of a disaster really well hello fresh is quick and easy meals 30 minutes they even say here there's 15 to 20 minute dinners which is even faster that's outrageous 50 menu and market items every week enjoy a wide variety of easy delicious options for all three meals a day that's right they even do breakfast plus snacks special treats in between those meals if you feel so inclined they're all sourced directly from local growers and delivered from the farm to your door in under a week contact free because covid of course hello fresh slash casual 14 and use code casual 14 that's casual one four and you get what up to 14 free meals plus free shipping that is a deal get on it and let's get back to the show initial investigation that rough timeline of events we just described was about as far as the investigation got in the year following enough people had seen the suspect to put together a sketch which was distributed among the fishermen of craig and beyond the theory was that the killer had left the area on board one of the many boats berthed there that weekend the investigators toyed with all kinds of angles including the possibility of a robbery gone wrong mark never actually kept any money on board precisely to deter any would-be pirates while berthing craig even wrote one of his buddies a check for a hundred dollars in exchange for the same amount in cash just so he could pay the restaurant bill why not just write a check to the restaurant weird robbery seemed unlikely but if not that then what months went by without any concrete leads detectives interviewed over a dozen suspects most had solid alibis and little reason to want to kill mark never mind his entire family and crew yeah i mean so he's a bit of a bragger and he'd like saying you know he made loads of money as a fisherman or whatever but it's not enough to be like yeah i'm gonna murder you and your family and then set your giant ship on fire it's like holy shit i mean setting the ship on fire even that is too much then around a year into the investigation their best lead came in the main suspect 
Several anonymous tips pointed out that the photo fits were a likeness for a deckhand named John Peel, who was in Craig at the time of the murder. Not only was the 23-year-old Peel a physical fit for the sketch, he also had a clear motive. He was an ex-employee of Mark Coulthurst on his old boat from 1980 to mid-1981. He even dated the boss's sister for some time. Some say their professional relationship ended, with Peel being fired for getting high on the job. In researching this episode, I've discovered there's a pretty common occurrence among trawler crews. It doesn't super surprise me that the trawler crews are getting high. It's like, it's got to be pretty hard work, right? You're going to be like fishing salmon for days at a time. I watched that Deadliest Catch TV show, which is so strange. It's like half reality, half fiction. I don't understand what that show's about. I saw it on a plane once. It was like the only thing to watch. And I was like, okay, I guess we're watching Deadliest Catch. It's weird. Um, yeah, but no, I, I, I get it why people might want to uh, smoke a little bit of the ganja. A little bit of coke and crystal meth works wonders when you need to smash through a 20-hour shift. How do you think Simon maintains that 50 videos per day release schedule? <laughs> Where's my crystal mess? So there was clearly some bad blood between Coulthurst and Peel, as well as the possibility that the latter might have been jacked up on amphetamines during the bloody one-man mutiny. Add to that the fact that one witness claimed Peel actually met his ex-boss at the restaurant the night he died. It's not looking good for you, Peel, is it? But I mean, it's all circumstantial, right? None of this is really going to pin it on him. Perhaps surprised to see Mark again, he snuck on board to confront him, full of that cocaine confidence that we all know and love. Perhaps the two men argued, debating the firing or a final paycheck, and things turned ugly. Mark was shot down, and then the rest of those on board were killed for the sake of damage control. Arrest. Ooh, they arrested him. Nice! This convincing bit of inference was enough to make Peel the prime suspect in the case, but police hadn't been able to recover any forensic evidence to match with not even a single fingerprint. Things were further complicated when the crime scene was confiscated by Poseidon. It sank to the bottom of the Pacific Ocean while being towed south for storage. <laughs> when Gallum wrote Poseidon, I was like, is this some sort of Canadian authority? Like, you know, Poseidon, P.O. It would stand for something. But no, it's just a joke. And never mind that, there were some things about the John Peel theory that just didn't add up. For one, it would surely take more than one man to kill the entire crew, especially when another gun was found aboard the investor, presumably for self-defense. Then there was the witness testimony. Police showed all of their star witnesses from that day photos of Peel and asked if he might be the person they saw. Some answered yes, many weren't sure, and some were 100% sure he was not the man in the skiff. In fact, two of the witnesses knew Peel personally and were absolutely certain that he wasn't the man in the boat. You think you'd recognize your mate if you saw him from 20 feet away, right? Yeah, that seems pretty conclusive, unless they want Peel to get off, but that seems unlikely given the gravity of everything that's going on. Um, so maybe it wasn't him at all. I, I, it doesn't look good, but I mean, you gotta have evidence. This is just all circumstantial so far. Nothing is not definitely not enough for it to stick to him. Nonetheless, the cops brought Peel in for questioning in 1983. By this point, he had started a family of his own and settled down in Bellingham, Washington. He told the cops he was asleep at the time of the massacre, but there was nobody to verify the alibi. According to Polygraph Machine, he was lying. However, we already know how those things are about as conclusive as reading tea leaves. Yeah, I think it was was it a casual criminalist one where it's like, yes, 52% accurate. So it's barely better than just absolute guesswork. The number of times I've just seen polygraphs down in movies or on TV, like there's that terrible TV show in the UK called Jeremy Kyle, where they give people polygraphs to see if they're lying about being their brother's cousin's aunt's dad's son or whatever. It's, you know, it's ridiculous. And yeah, so it just turns out they're just not accurate at all or very, 
very inaccurate. Certainly not enough to charge a man with murder on, so Peel was free to go. Over the following year, dozens more tips came down the line, leading to a few more suspects joining the pool. As the interviews piled up, one name kept cropping up again and again. All roads led back to a young ex-deckhand. He must have been the right man, but still there wasn't a shred of physical proof. The cops took another run at him regardless, hoping to sweat out a confession by exaggerating the evidence against him, but he never snapped. With the investigation dragging on and little hope of concrete evidence ever materializing, the cops decided to go with their best hunch. In September 1984, two years after the slaughter on the investor, they arrested John Peel for the murders of all eight on board. <laughs> Wait, just because... <laughs> Just because they couldn't find anyone else to, who was more likely, they decided to go with a guy who also doesn't seem to be very likely? That seems pretty shoddy. Is, that, is this going to go... I, I see the next section is titled The Trials, but surely he's getting off. There's just circumstantial evidence, and it's not even that good. On top of the eight counts of murder, Peel was also charged with one of first-degree arson, with bail set at an unimpressive $1 million. All of the charges combined, he was looking at a theoretical max sentence of 812 years. I'd say a oh, million-dollar bail is fairly impressive. I don't think that most people can just, you know, rummage up a million dollars to make bail. The prosecution presented their case in Mar March of 1986, which was almost entirely based on circumstantial evidence. Yes, for example, when the fishermen of Cray gathered on the docks to gaze out at the smoldering wreck of the investor the day after, the suspect was reportedly among them. One witness testified that Peel seemed to already know that those on board were dead. Another witness, I mean, yeah, it's not a bad assumption. I believe I made that assumption as the first thing I did when I started this video. It's like there's a giant burning ship and there's no mayday coming from it. It's because they're all dead. <laughs> you don't have to be a genius or the person who killed them to make that assumption. Another witness claimed that he heard screams and gunshots coming from the boat on the night of the murder, but just plain forgot about it. It wasn't until he was later awoken from a nap by a neighbor shooting a rifle in the garden that deja vu set in. Imagine waking up to the sounds of a literal massacre and just going back to sleep. Yeah, that is a bit weird, isn't it? It's like, yeah, no, I heard the gunshots that night. I heard the screams. Did you do anything about it? Nah, I was really tired. Just went back to bed. It's cool. I'm sure it's fine. They're just watching a movie, right? When the defense asked him if he might not have been drunkenly dreaming, he said, no, probably, which doesn't make for a very convincing testimony in front of a jury. That was a recurring theme among the pool of witnesses who ranged from tipsy to shit-faced the entire weekend of the murders. Other witnesses were a bit more put together. One was Peel's own captain, Larry Demmert, who, who said he saw the accused on the docks with a gun that night. Another, named Jim Robinson, claimed that he sold him the gasoline. But without physical evidence, all of this was open for interpretation. I mean, they didn't even have the murder weapon. Peel's defense was mainly focused on pointing out these facts. Without anything actually placing him at the scene, all of this amounted to just drug-addled fishermen's gossip. On the other hand, the defense team provided testimony from Mark's friends and family, suggesting that the two got along just fine. Apparently, the Coulthursts even sent Peel a gift on his wedding day. Peel lived not far from Mark down in Washington State and moved in the same social circles. If he had a score to settle, he would have had plenty of chances already, but according to these accounts, his employment ended amicably. Peel's lawyers argued that the detectives had railroaded the witness into making false reports. For one, some of the ID parades contained about one-third pictures of John Peel, and the images seemed specifically chosen to generate a false positive. He was wearing a baseball cap in most of them, just like the killer. <laughs> Police, just do the job. If you don't, I feel like if you don't know who did it, that's okay. You don't need to convict someone. It's better to have the 
guilty person free than the innocent person in prison. It even emerged that witness descriptions were actually much more varied than the photo fit suggested. One of them even describes the man uh, in the skiff as a Native American, which Peel was very much not. If anything, Peel was exceptionally unremarkable in his appearance. As the mayor of Craig told the Associated Press back then, there were probably 500 guys in town that looked just like him. Then there's the fact that some of the witnesses had state drug charges pending against them, which were allegedly dropped in return for collaboration, including Captain Larry Dennett. Is it possible that they just made up their stories to land a sweet immunity deal and dodge prison themselves? Well, yeah, it's highly likely. If someone says, do you have any evidence against this guy and we can take away your criminal record and you don't have evidence, you'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah I have evidence. Definitely have lots of it. I'm riddled with evidence as long as you can make those crimes go away. The crimes I did, please. All this meant that it was easy enough to prove reasonable doubt to the jury, and the case ended in a split jury and mistrial. The victim's relatives would need to wait another year for a second shot at justice. The second trial began in January 1988, making the case Alaska's longest-running and most expensive prosecution ever, at $2 million all in. The second trial was far shorter than the first due to a ballsy move from Peel's legal team. They realized how shambolic the prosecution's case sounded to the jury and never even bothered launching into a separate defense plan. Three months into trial number two, John Peel would be acquitted on all charges. The Alternative Theories so what do we think of John Peel? Is he an innocent man who had to spend five years of his life fighting a crooked justice system, or just Alaska's OJ? Detective David McNeil, who aided the Alaskan authorities from down in Washington, certainly considers the case a done deal. They got the right guy. Just because someone is acquitted doesn't mean they're innocent. Just means there's not enough evidence to show guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. I don't know. I, I kind of... It's just a lot of circumstantial evidence that is not, like, super compelling. Who is this guy? Detective. Well, yeah, he's kind of bound to say that. These detectives seem to be railroading to this conclusion very early on. Very true, but let's consider the alternatives. There's always the chance that someone else had a grudge against the young, successful fisherman, and Peel ended up taking the flag for their crime. He does seem to be the perfect culprit, but perhaps that's precisely why the cops were too quick to blame, pin the blame on him. The most worrying thing is that the investigation was pretty biased from the outset. The first trial was actually thrown out of court in the pre-trial stages because of how misleading the state prosecutors were to the grand jury. Perhaps by focusing on Peel, the state investigators might have missed out on hundreds of potential leads that sailed out to sea in the days directly after. There were even some ex-cons actually based in Craig who unbelievably managed to slip under the radar once the cops caught on to Peel's scent. Well, it's not so unbelievable. Like We've seen it many times on The Casual Criminalist where it's like the cops find the guy that they think is the bad guy and they're missing all of the other super obvious bad guys under their noses because they're like, that's our guy. Focus every effort on getting him. The locals. One was Jim Leroy Robinson, the garage owner who testified he sold Peel the pistol. Years later, it transpired that he was actually Kenneth Robertson, a convicted arsonist on the run from Arizona. I to Alaska, I told you, is where criminals go to hide. Perhaps the sort of person you should keep tabs on when shit catches fire, indeed. This angle is made all the more interesting by what fire investigators found on board the Investor. Apparently, they discovered white gas residue inside, suggesting that petrol was not used to set fire to the ship. Even if Peel did buy that jerry can at the garage, it probably wasn't used to start the fire. That's not to say the twisted fire starter was to blame, but it certainly would incentivize him to heap more suspicion on the police's favorite suspect. Keep in mind, that's all speculation. We've gone six months with no defamation claims, let's keep it that way. Yeah, yeah, I've always wanted to throw in an allegedly, or a, in my opinion, because, you know, 
just for safety, allegedly. Being a little-known town at the end of the world, Craig probably had more than a few of these unsavory characters kicking around with a permanent or temporary residence. However, since the ships all dispersed and the authorities honed in on a small pool of suspects, the actual culprit may have disappeared without a trace. The Deckhands And speaking of disappearing without a trace, remember those two deckhands from before who were never positively identified? It's possible one of them wasn't actually among the dead. They were the one that killed everyone on board. It would be the perfect crime. Slipping away in a skiff, presumed dead, it would also explain why the fire was mainly concentrated in the crew quarters. We know that the fire accelerants turned their sleeping quarters into a funerary furnace, reducing the bones to just a few scattered fragments. If Peel had set out to kill Mark, his body would likely have been one of the worst affected. To add to the intrigue, reports came up from San Francisco between the murders and trial. Apparently, the deckhand Dean Moon had been spotted several times down there. Was he living under a new identity after getting away with mass murder? Well, some still think so. But what would be the motive? As far as anyone knew, the youngsters under Mark's command absolutely idolized him. They each had aspirations of striking it rich in the industry, so it wouldn't make much sense to torture first boss and any chance of a glowing reference down the line. Plus, Mark never kept any money on board. Surely you'd kill the guy after your paycheck comes in. No, unless Dean Moon had some kind of unprecedented mental break. I struggle to buy this angle. Yeah, I agree. That seems super unlikely. The Drug Runners Perhaps the final theory is a bit more realistic. This revolves around the rumors that circulated around the fish community at the time that Mark's ship transported more than just salmon. Some said that he was involved in the drug trade, which could help explain why he was able to afford such a fancy boat. He also seemed to be very good at fishing, though. He made like $100,000 in a weekend. And I know it's like, okay, so he has to sell the salmon and there's costs associated with that and sure, blah, 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 blah. But I mean, he did seem to be quite good at it. So, and he doesn't have to pay for the boat outright. Mm, skeptical so far, but maybe Callum will persuade me. As I mentioned before, several industry websites suggested that practically everyone involved in commercial fishing is off their nut 24-7, so the drugs have to be making their way up to Alaska somehow. What better way than buried deep in the hull of a trawler? If Mark really was the scarface of the salmon trade, then the killings could have been a professional hit job by a rival or angry supplier. The sheer brutality of the massacre is clearly more consistent with drug gang violence than a simple crime of passion. Yeah, I mean, saying it was the dude who was, you know, uh, in the relationship with the sister, I already forgot his name. <laughs> but this guy, because he was just, a, it's just a crime of passion, killing his entire family and then burning them all. It's like, this feels way, this does feel way more like drug stuff. Like, okay, I'm kind of buying it now. It might sound like we've tossed Occam's razor right out of the window here by introducing drug-running cartels into the mix, but this isn't some internet conspiracy theory. Even Sheriff Shapley considers it a real possibility. He later told an Alaskan news station, I've heard a lot of talk that it was a drug boat. They say Craig floated on drugs in those days. You'd think that he would be a bit more knowledgeable about the town's drug culture since it was his job to know it and all, but the fact that he doesn't deny it adds a bit more credence to the rumors. This version of the story goes that Mark transferred a large quantity of cocaine off of his ship after arriving in Craig. But if that was the case, then why bring the wife and kids? Toddlers typically don't make for great muscle during drug deals. Maybe just to keep it as if it looks all super normal? Like, yeah, 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 we're just going fishing. I'm like, why is your family with you fishing anyway? Which is weird in itself. Don't they stay on shore? Like, I'm pretty sure in the deadliest catch or whatever. The family's not going out with them. There's also that movie, The Perfect Storm. 
It's like they don't. The, the dudes go out and they do their fishing thing. It seems really horrible and intense. The family stay at home. Maybe for a high-level mule, a family-friendly fishing trip makes for the perfect cover. We have to be careful with these kinds of angles, though. If it's all a fantasy, perhaps cooked up by some folks who are just jealous of Mark's quick wealth, then we risk dragging the name of a regular fisherman through the dirt. What is important, though, is that we consider the possibility that Peel wasn't the only one with motive to harm Mark. Professional rivalries can get pretty intense when six-figure paydays are on the line, whether from cocaine or from fish. In fact, Peel's motive seems pretty weak, all things considered. Even Mark's own sister agrees. After decades believing Peel massacred her loved ones, she agreed to meet him in a diner, looking for closure. Instead, the meeting only brought more confusion. Now she's even less convinced. I don't know if he's actually the one who pulled the trigger, but I think he knows more than he's saying. The mystery could potentially run far deeper than we ever know. Wrap up. That brings us to the end of the evidence for today's mini mystery. I wouldn't say it's a mini mystery, it's a pretty big mystery. Although it remains Alaska's biggest unsolved murder case in. Th there we go. The state troopers, uh, murder case, the state troopers who worked to consider the matter wrapped up, albeit very messily. Spokesman Tim Despain went as far as revealing the case is closed. For the better part of a decade, Peel was their white whale. Still, they refused to entertain any alternative theories. Clearly, they got the right guy. Except people think you didn't. Shame the case they put together against him was so shoddy then. In fact, Peel managed to actually profit from the whole thing because of how poor the evidence against him was. Two years after the acquittal, he fired a $177 million civil lawsuit against the state for wrongful prosecution. That'd be enough to buy a mega yacht and retire for life. The case dragged on until 1997 when he settled for a comparably modest $900,000. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot less than what you asked for. Just about enough to cover the financial ruin the case wreaked on his family. If he really is innocent, then, the investor massacre trial was an undeserved nightmare. On the other hand, if you believe he's guilty, then surely this has to be one of the most successful killers we've ever featured on the show. I don't think he's guilty. That's my, thing. That's my thinking. I mean, I know the drug thing does seem a bit unlikely, but it's so intense. Like, you've seen those drug movies and stuff. The drug cartels are intense. They'll kill your family. Like, I don't feel like regular people just burn your children to death. But if you're involved in drug cartels, holy sh**. Dismembered appendices. Number one, the matter of the missing bodies never played too much of a role in Peel's court cases because the state had all three unidentified. Dean Moon, Chris Heyman, and John Coulthurst declared legally dead while pursuing the first indictment. This effectively nullified the murderous deck and angle outright. If one of them was to blame, not including the four-year-old, then this was the cherry on top of the perfect crime. Number two, perhaps the trouble which the witnesses had in identifying Peel was down to his masterful knack for disguise. Each time he appeared in court, he would wear a slightly different quirky disguise, wigs, sticky moustaches, and the like. His lawyer said it was an oddball attempt to protect his privacy. Still, I'm not sure those dollar store disguises would be enough to fool a dozen witnesses. Yes, agreed. This has been an episode of The Casual Criminalist. Thank you so much for listening to the show, watching the show, if you watch it on YouTube. If you are enjoying it, please do consider leaving a review. If you're a podcast listener or whatever on uh, iTunes or Apple Podcasts, as it's called, please do leave a review. Five stars is, of course, preferred. But if you're like, mm, feels like a bit of a four-star assignment, doesn't it? You can leave a four-star review. That's all right. You can leave whatever review you think I deserve, to be honest. Um, if you're on YouTube, like button, dislike button, subscribe button, all things that you can use. And I'll be back soon. Thank you for watching.